This is Amy Hall. I'm here with Greg Kokel, and you're listening to Stand to Reasons, hashtag STRask podcast. Hi, Amy. Hello, Greg. Are you ready for your first question? Sure. This one comes from Jim D. Your, t- your YouTube videos entitled, Is Pig's Meat Allowed Today or Not?, Alan Schleeman explained the change of covenants and how that relates to Mosaic law. However, why did God command Israel not to eat pigs in the first place, especially if these Mosaic laws weren't fundamental to the moral laws? Well, uh, this is another one of those why questions to which we have no answer from God. So what we're left with is speculation. Now, uh, just to note that Jesus declared all foods clean. Okay, because it's not what goes into a man that defiles him, but what comes out is Jesus' reasoning. There was another purpose uh, for some of these laws, and but it did not have to do with moral cleanliness. So there was no moral element to this. Um, some of these laws were meant uh, clearly to create a kind of cultural dividing wall that kept the Jews distinct in very significant ways from the pagan cultures around them, and in this distinction could be protected as uh, from becoming eclectic in their practices, which many of their practices, even food practices, it seemed, had to do—had had kind of pagan implications. Uh, I actually think this is what the tattoo thing is about, you know. Um, there were pagan things that were involved with having tattoos. There wasn't anything— Im- universally immoral about marking your body with a tattoo, but rather because of this other association. Uh, Some might disagree. That's all right. But uh, that's my sense. So you've got this purpose. um, But another purpose might have been health reasons. And, of course, for a long time, pork was a problem, even in modern times, because of the the kind of worm or whatever that – could be transferred when pigs eat would would eat table stuff and other pork whatever that just created a a problem a health problem with some particular kind of I can't remember the name of it now I used to know but this isn't a problem anymore today because of regulations and stuff like that and how pigs are being fed so this might have been um as a disease preventer or something like that. Now, um, there is a book out that I saw a long time ago, and it said, None of These Diseases. That was the title of the book. And as I recall, what the book was about was reflecting on some of the dietary commandments and the health implications for them, so that um, what God was doing was directing their, their dietary habits to some degree away from things that were dangerous and towards things that were healthy for them. So that could be part of the reason. Um, I'm not sure. I mean, the the question being asked is, well, if if the dietary law was just for health, or at least some of those, pork in particular, then why is it that it was abrogated? And, uh, I, you know, I can't answer that. Uh, wouldn't, wouldn't it still be unhealthy to eat pork? And uh, I, I just can't answer that. I don't know. And yes, it would still be unhealthy to eat pork, but um, you have to ask Jesus when you see him, because <laughs> he didn't make any exceptions. And it might have been there's a greater concern for him about all the kashrut or all the, the uh, dietary laws. And so he just um, was removing all of that 
and of course, anticipating the time when the new covenant would come very soon, which needed to be clarified by Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, that what the new covenant did is it provided for the breaking down of that dividing wall that separated the Gentiles from the Jews, which, for example, even Peter still after the resurrection and after the giving of the Holy Spirit, was still struggling with. Because in Acts chapter uh, 10, I think it is, when he is sent to see Cornelius, um, he has this vision of uh, all these unclean foods. He said, And God says, you know, arise, take, and eat. And he said, I'm not going to eat anything unclean. Well, wait a minute. There's nothing really unclean at that point. But, of course, this was an analog to the unclean Gentiles, uh, and it was not lawful um, for them to, you know, mingle with the Gentiles. And this is a conflict that Peter had and was resolved by this vision. And he even explained it to Cornelius, you know. And then since God told me, go do it, then whatever their law was that they couldn't darken the threshold of a Gentile, that wasn't God's law. That was getting in the way of the fulfillment of the Great Commission. And so... Um, Paul goes into detail talking about dividing that—I'm sorry, destroying that dividing wall. This is, again, in Ephesians 2. Having removed the the Mosaic law, which was the thing that kept the Jews and the Gentiles apart, so that they can all be made into one new man, and that would be the church in which there is no mm-hmm. Jew and no Gentile. So there's a broad explanation about why a lot of these— Laws were given that were not did not have universal moral character, but were morally obligatory for the Jews, given God's command, the reason for them, and uh, why th- the law was done away with. And, and maybe it was just easier to just say all foods are clean, and w- this is not a factor anymore, rather than trying to pick and choose. And by the way, you still shouldn't eat pork, you know, um, because it's not good for you. And that that just create more confusion with the Jews. It, it was a it was a huge problem for them to leave behind the commandments of the Mosaic Covenant and embrace the freedom in Christ that was available under the New Covenant. That was a huge problem. And you read through the book of Acts, you see that. And it was a charge that was laid against Paul many times. He's trying to destroy the law. And uh, he's telling people not to do the law. And there's a certain sense that was not true, and there's a certain sense it was true. So maybe, I mean, my, maybe this falls underneath. But this is, regarding the pork per se, that's my speculation. This is a, you mentioned Acts. This is addressed very specifically in Galatians, in Romans. You mentioned Ephesians. Because as you said, it was a huge deal for them. And I think, I think you're right that the, the main thing that we can know explicitly— from the Bible is that it was the the law was meant to serve as a dividing wall. Mm-hmm. And when you think about it, here God is taking a pagan guy who knows nothing about God and revealing himself to one man, to Abraham, and he's trying to develop an entire culture. And if you know anything about culture, cultures change very very slowly. Ideas ideas will trickle in and start to change things. Now, of course, today things move a lot faster because we have more methods of communication and, right. and all those sorts of things. But to change the assumed things by a culture takes so long. And the pressure, and this is something we do understand as Christians, the pressure, the peer pressure 
from the people around us is very hard to resist. So what God did is he set up a a whole system of laws where they would be separate from the nations around them because it's a lot easier to direct them morally, and there are a lot of moral laws also, it's a lot easier to direct them morally and shape them morally if they're not constantly being pressured by all the nations around them Mm -hmm. to become something else and to have a different basic worldview about who God is and what our purpose is and, and all those things. And again, this is something we're starting to understand better now as we're starting to get squeezed in those very same ways. And we're seeing our, our culture mm. giving over to these other ideas. And as the ideas change, some of the basic things, ways that we live our lives are changing also. Right. So all of these things protected the the nation of Israel. But now consider a change in the type of the of the whole covenant. So the covenant was a physical covenant, you know, Abraham and his children. You could become a Jew if you wanted to. Uh, there there were converts, but basically it was connected to the children of Abraham. Physical descendants, yeah. right? The seed. So now it's a different kind of covenant. We are Christians are not one nation. Uh, you know, all huddling together because God's still developing the worldview and developing the ideas. That's not how it is now. He he doesn't have to cordon off a, a nation. In fact, he wants us to go out to other nations and to go out and to reach other people. And because we're not now kind of uh, divided by these laws, we are free to reach out to, you know, other nations where they have different, you know, non-moral cultural commitments, Mm -hmm. and there's no need for us to separate from them. Mm -hmm. And I think part of that is that God's already developed the whole worldview over thousands of years. And part of that is what we find, I think, in Romans 8, where Paul talks about how we were not able to—the law doesn't give the power to, to obey God. It's having the Holy Spirit who gives life to our bodies and who enables us to obey mm-hmm. that that directs us now as Christians. So because of that, I think we it's it's not quite it, it, we're in a different situation now. We right. don't have to huddle together and never interact with other Circle people. Circle the wagons. In yeah. fact, what's so ironic is that they for a thousand years they did not do a very good job of of that, which is why you have the Babylonian captivity, the Assyrian dispersion. These are all judgments because of their uh, eclectic practices mm-hmm. taking on foreign religions. And uh, then after the return to the land, they went way the other way, you know. And so now uh, Gentile was a synonym for sinner, you know, and the Jews were the wonderful Jews. And and that's why Paul has to address that in the book of Romans. Well, wait a minute, just being circumcised is not magic with regards to salvation, you know. Some people are circumcised in their heart, uh, and that's better than the people who are not circumcised in their heart but are circumcised in their body. So you just see this kind of radical shift, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, they just don't get it, you know. And, and one last thing to say about people being set apart by— 
rules that are not moral rules. You see this in other instances, even within the nation of Israel. You see the Nazarite vow, for instance, where they were, I think that was the one where they weren't allowed to cut their hair and they weren't allowed to drink wine. Neither of those things are immoral things. So there we see an example of rules setting apart a specific population. Sometimes it was for a time. Sometimes it was for longer. And it's not because those things are immoral. Mm -hmm. There were other reasons for it. Mm -hmm. So the same thing, I think, is true of eating pork. Okay, Greg, let's— That's a good news for bacon lovers (laughs) like me. Let's go on. What would a a men's breakfast be without— Without bacon. Lots and lots and lots of bacon. (laughs) And, of course, the obligatory pancakes, which I'm not so wild about. But the bacon— I'll sit there and make a whole meal out of that. All right. Let's go to a question from Katie from Montana. Why does Jesus say his yoke is easy and his burden is light? We're told to take up our cross and fight sin. Taking up a cross and fighting sin are not easy things. So why does he say his yoke is easy and his burden is light? In what ways is it easy and light? Is it because he helps us with the struggle? Well, this is something that um, I've had some um, fresh thinking about in the last couple of years. And when I ran that, this idea that I'll share by you, I got the nod. You said you've been thinking the same thing. And um, what he is principally referring to there. Now, I think the way that most people take it is, look, at I'm in a tough place. And so I'm going to help have Jesus help shoulder my burden. And I'm turning to him and trusting in him. And I think there's a uh, way in which that's true. I mean, and not just from that verse, but other ones. And and uh, Jesus is our friend, and He walks with us, and He helps us. And we, by knowing that He is there for us, and He will never leave us or forsake us, that He has overcome the world. These other passages uh, that talk about it. This is a comfort for us, and it helps us to endure. Um, but I think in that case, He was He was making a different point. Um, when you read the Sermon on the Mount, especially the first portion of the chapter 5 of Matthew, um, there's not much good news in there. There's a lot of bad news. And uh, after the blesseds, which sound nice and they're encouraging, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the kind, blessed are the poor in spirit. By the way, that one is misunderstood a lot. Poor in spirit is not poor people. There is another parallel passage where he said, blessed are the poor. But this one clarifies he's talking about poor in spirit. In other words, people who are aware of their spiritual poverty, they need forgiveness, okay, which is something the religious leaders did not acknowledge. And so what Jesus then begins to do after he talks about blessed are those who are persecuted, now the tone is changing a little bit. Wait, that doesn't sound so good. You know, rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven. Then he gets into some theological matters about the nature of the law. And he says, first of all, the law is not going to be taken away, all right? Every jot and tittle has to be fulfilled. Now, that creates a burden. In fact, the burden is hinted at when he says, your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Now, of course, what he's referring to is the visible righteousness of these people. The, the, the Jews understood that these are the cardinals and the, the popes, you know, um, uh, you know, of our religious community. These are the highest of the highest. These are the most spiritual, et cetera, et cetera. And you're saying we have to do better than those guys to get in. This is not good news. This is bad news. Then he part, Then he gives individual instances, and he says, uh, so don't murder. Oh, I haven't done that. Well, have you called your brother 
a fool. Sure. Well, you're going to hell. And it's interesting in that little segment, he he decreases the the uh, the grievance. You know, if you hate your brother without cause, if you just call him a fool, you'll be guilty before the court. And he de- decreases the grievance, but he increases the punishment. And so if you just call him fool, now you're going to hell. Wait a minute. Then he said, don't commit adultery. Oh, I didn't do that. You ever think about it? You're going to hell. Uh, and then he closes that section with, you are to be perfect as my heavenly Father is perfect. So this is not good news. What he is showing is what the law demands. This is bad news upon bad news upon bad news. And Jesus gave a lot of bad news. And he wanted people to feel the full weight of the law's demands. And then he says, come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So what's the rest that I think that he principally has in mind? And that is rest from the burden of the law, because he has fulfilled the law and he's made forgiveness available to lawbreakers. And then this is a theme that continues more aggressively as he moves on. He talks about the Pharisee. There's the Pharisee in the front of the of the uh, synagogue praying and uh, counting his virtues before God and his his religious virtues before God. There's the tax gatherer in the back who's beating his breast saying, God have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said, that man goes away justified, not this Pharisee who is apparently keeping all the demands of the law. So I think it what Jesus is releasing us from, what he's referring to there, and I, I can tell you quite honestly in my own life, this I was raised Roman Catholic, so I understood the demands of the law, but grace, not not New Testament grace, was not communicated. Um, you have to go back every weekend, Saturday afternoon, and get a little more piece of it to protect you until the next time you really mess up, and then you're in trouble, then you're vulnerable. It was not forgiveness, and it's over. And when I learned that forgiveness was the way the New Testament expresses uh, that I could be justified in the moment because of my appeal to Christ and on the basis of Christ for forgiveness, uh, that released a tremendous burden for my shoulders. And frankly, for my whole Christian life, having a rich understanding of the grace of God has been a tremendous help to me. So my my I think Jesus is referring to um, being rescuing people from the demands of the law. And when we come to him, he is our rescuer, and the burden of the law falls upon him. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I mean, there's more that could be said about that, and there are more verses that we could press into service to make this particular point. But I think that was Jesus' main point. And the Bible, talk, well, it talks about how, you know, we are entering into his rest. The whole idea of having a Sabbath to demonstrate work and then rest. And then today is the day of entering that rest. That yeah. was supposed to be a shadow of our being entering into the rest of God by being joined to Christ and having him pay for our sins mm-hmm. and having his righteousness because we are in him. So, of course, putting your sin to death is hard. It is very hard. And I, that is just, that is that's just true. Life, that's a lifelong battle. But without Christ, it's impossible. Yeah. Um, we are slaves of sin without Christ. Now, this is where I think, again, Romans is so helpful with all of this. Uh, I would say like five through eight really goes into this whole topic. 
And one thing I wanted to bring up here is, um, well, I and I can't remember what we said and everything we said in the last question because I'm always thinking about mm-hmm. Romans. So <laughs> hopefully I won't repeat myself too much. But in chapter seven, it talks about how we, as you know, a woman who's married is bound to her husband while he's alive. When her husband dies, she's released from the law. And what Paul says is, this is what has happened to you. You have died to the law through the body of Christ. So you've been joined to Christ. You've died to the law so that you could be joined to another, to him who raised from the dead. Mm -hmm. So now we're joined to Christ instead of the law. And what Paul says is, you know, the law was not able to give us the power to be righteous. Mm -hmm. But now that we are joined to Christ, now that we've been released from the from the law and we're joined to Christ, now we can bear fruit for God. Right. So now we're in a position where we can kill our sin. But even though his point in chapter, you know, seven is that we can, you know, the law does not do this, but but the but the Holy Spirit gives us the power to put our sin to death. Even then, listen to what he says. He says, so then, brethren, this is chapter 8, verse 12. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Okay, so now people listening to that might think, oh, I'm going to live because now I'm doing righteous things. But that's not the reason he gives. Here's the reason he gives. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Mm-hmm. So he's saying... It's indicative of the fact that you are now sons. It's not that you're earning it. It's that you are now sons. And then he says, for you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you've received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Mm -hmm. So his whole point here is, yes, you... If you go back to six, he was talking about, oh, should we just sin if we are saved by grace? And he says, no. no. Mm-hmm. And the reason why never be, right? is because we are no longer slaves to sin. And our the purpose of our being saved is so that we will bear fruit for yeah. God. Yeah. And so now we're able to do that. And we're not saved because we're able to do that. The fact that we're able to do that indicates that we have the spirit and we are sons of yeah. God. And we have that rest and we have that that. We no longer have a spirit of fear leading to slavery again. We have a spirit of sons. We have been adopted. We have that rest. We have that guarantee. We have that that knowledge that we have been saved. And that is why his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Two postscripts. Uh, When you read the Romans 8 passage, for as many as being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. But you read the whole context it's very clear in that passage that led by the Spirit, according to Paul, does not have bear any resemblance to the way most people use the phrase. Paul is not talking about getting nudge, 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 hint, 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 little whisper, whisper, whisper about what to do and where to go and who to marry and what job to take. Oh, I felt led. No, being led is not a feeling. Being led is a, is a result, being led according to Paul, is a result of the spirit working in your life that you're that you're not according to the mm-hmm. flesh but according to the spirit that's the theme of that first part of that chapter and it is putting to death the deeds of the flesh being led by the spirit is growing in holiness by the spirit's mm-hmm. power 
And that's the same way the same phrase is used. The only other place in the New Testament where it's used is in Galatians 5, and that's also Pauline, and he uses it exactly the same way. So just a little tutorial on the phrase led by the Spirit. The other thing I was going to say was Romans 5 starts out with this with these words, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. It's not the peace of God. There's that. But that's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about we have peace with God. In other words, we're not at war with God anymore. God's not at war with us. We have been reconciled together. How? We have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received our introduction into this grace in which we stand. Okay, so another way, there's the emphasis. That's the burden that is light that we benefit from in virtue of being justified by faith. And I need to say one last thing because Paul said it also because he knew it was important and it was crucial that people hear this. But what he points out is this doesn't mean if you are being led by the Spirit, that doesn't mean that you are perfect right. now. He actually says— uh, we're 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 groaning. Mm-hmm. We are we are still subject to sin. We are groaning within ourselves, mm-hmm. and we're waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. And he says, "For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees?" And then he talks about how mm. the Holy Spirit. And I think what currently what I'm thinking about, you know, the Spirit interceding with groans too deep for words. I think he's still talking about the groaning that he was talking about in the previous paragraphs where creation is still struggling under their sin. So as we're struggling under our sin, the Spirit helps in our weakness. He prays for us. Then it goes right into the passage about God making us into the image of his Son. Mm -hmm. So all of this is about the Holy Spirit working within us, but with the understanding that we're not there yet. Right. We It is in hope. It is happening. We are being conformed to the image of his son. And his point is that it's guaranteed it will happen. But right now we're still groaning. We're still fighting our sin. We're still putting our sin to death. So if you are not perfect, do not hear. <laughs> do not hear me saying that uh, the having the Holy Spirit makes you perfect. In fact, why don't you memorize Romans 6 through 8? There you go. <laughs> <laughs> and that and that might help you to grasp. I, or at I, least read it carefully a bunch of times. <laughs> yes, you could do that too. But memorizing does so much to help this because you see how all the parts fit together. We're so used to getting little bits here and there that it takes a while reading it all at once yeah. to realize, oh my gosh, all the time, all this time, people have been using this verse by itself, and I never understood how it related to the right. previous chapters, right. let alone the 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 sentences around it. So your sense is the uh, passage in the Gospels where Jesus says, come unto me all who are weary and heavy laden is specifically and principally related to the the burden of the law that he has removed. And now we have mm-hmm. Christ, you know, as our advocate, yeah. which is a light burden by and comparison. And there are passages that talk about entering into his rest mm-hmm. in other places that have to do with... Um, ceasing from our works. And I can't think of where it is at this mm-hmm. at this one second. But I think there are explicitly places that say that, that go along with what you have said here. All right, Greg, we've gone a little bit over. <laughs> uh, but that's it. So uh, you have been listening to the Hashtag STR Ask podcast. This is Amy Hall and Greg Kokel for Stand to Reason.